Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm George Mason, your host, and I'm delighted to welcome to an edition of American Faith, a series uh, that we are doing in Good God, uh, my good friend, Imam Dr. Omar Sullivan. Imam, we're so glad to have you here. Always good to be with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I should uh, just briefly introduce you and say that other than being my friend and uh, colleague in the Dallas community, uh, Omar is the president of the Yaqeen Institute for Islamic Studies. He is an adjunct professor uh, for Islamic Studies at Southern Methodist University, SMU, and he is special advisor to Faith Commons, uh, the parent organization of this particular program. Uh, Omar, we've had lots of conversations across the years and lots of ways of working together in Dallas. And so uh, this is a, sort of a, a bit of a picking up after an ellipsis point for us. Uh, but for others, it is an introduction. Uh, one of the things we're trying to do in this series is to, uh, is to make the point that uh, there are many American faiths. There is not one American faith. Uh, that is to say that although the dominant narrative maybe for most Americans is that America was founded as a Christian nation, uh, the truth is Christians came to these shores, but the nation itself was founded not to be Christian, that constitutional America, uh, was deliberately intended to be pluralist and to be welcoming to all religions and not to be preferring one. Uh, so then we find that there is a proliferation of religions that grows over the course of, of two centuries or more of uh, American life. And here we have someone like you born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, right? I like uh, how you said New Orleans, right? That, that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, my wife went to Loyola in New Orleans. So oh my I, had, God. All right. yeah, I, I, I had to get that right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in any case, you, you are American through and through. Uh, and uh, it, it's not like you uh, have come from someplace across the sea although your parents did uh, as immigrants, um, but nonetheless, you uh, are an American and you are Muslim. Uh, you are uh, practicing a faith that is widespread now in America and is as American as anyone else's faith, but it doesn't always feel like that on the ground. Can you tell us some anecdotal ways perhaps in, in which we could understand what the everyday lived experience is for a Muslim American? Mm. That's, that's a great question. Um, I, I would say first and foremost, yes, obviously, um, you know, uh, idealistically, realistically, those, those two things uh, don't always line up where, <laughs> Uh, sometimes the way that we see ourselves, we're not seen by others. And um, we uh, have to refuse um, 
living up to someone else's standard of what it means to be an American um, or, or someone else's prototype just because we don't fit it. Uh, and when it comes to being an American Muslim, I think the lived experience depends upon many other factors. I think that there is a an underlying consistent factor of you know, living with the demonization of your faith. The faith is demonized uh, and, and the community is demonized and uh, the Muslim world is demonized. And so I think that anyone that takes their faith seriously, um, you know, as a Muslim um, deals with the discomfort of the demonization of Islam and the Muslim community. That's been pretty consistent. And Islamophobia has emanated from uh, all quarters of political life, American political life, as well as social uh, life and, and media life. And what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to Hollywood, when it comes to the portrayal of Islam and the Muslim community through Hollywood, where, you know, it's, it's, it's constantly um, portraying Islam and the Muslims as a community that needs to be saved, the community that um, you know, that, that, that either is, is vicious and malicious or uh, hostage to a, a vicious and malicious way of life, and they need to be saved from their way of life. So it emanates Islamophobia and the demonization of Islam in the Muslim community emanates from all sides um, in different ways. It's packaged in different ways. However, I think that the next step, the next step or the next level of that uh, really depends on, on a number of factors. So, um, if you are African-American and Muslim, you're black and Muslim. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. The, the African-American community is the largest makeup of Muslims in America. And a lot of times that is not what is displayed in the media. Right. Um, our forefathers of Islam in America are uh, those that were brought in chains. Uh, up to 30% of those that were brought enslaved were Muslims and had their faith violently taken away from them. And then there's a resurgence of Islam in the 20th century through the likes of Malcolm X and, and Muhammad Ali, right? So if you're black and Muslim, you're dealing with being black and being Muslim. And so that means, uh, you know, a double, a double whammy in that sense, right? In terms of discrimination and bigotry. And uh, we've seen that. We've, we've seen the way that discrimination is compounded if you're black and Muslim. Then if you are uh, foreign looking, if you're an immigrant and you are Muslim and, and, and I'm talking about you know, someone with a thick accent and someone that mm -hmm. comes from a country that's particularly, um, you know, being looked at as, as hostile to the United States in the moment, right? And that's something that you see peak in accordance with whoever we're describing as evil at the moment, <laughs> yes, you know, yes. or, or focusing in on as evil at the moment, then you're facing that level of discrimination, right? You're, you're, you're being targeted. If you are a Palestinian Muslim, you're dealing with anti-Palestinian bigotry as well as being Muslim. And then if you're a Muslim woman, you are a, a very visible target of, uh, of Islamophobes. And so you're more likely to witness bigotry at an enhanced level in, in public life and deal with those types of challenges, again, from all types of quarters. And so you can expect that your, your day to just go out and grab a cup of coffee can turn into the worst day of your life at any moment because, you know, the person that's serving you your cup of coffee decides to throw a comment towards you or you're, you're driving on the road. And, you know, my wife being a, a hijabi Muslim woman, um, a, wo a woman who wears hijab, a Muslim woman who wears hijab, the experiences that she has, even though I wear this pretty much everywhere, um, you know, um, 
the experiences that she has are, are, are far more frightening than the experiences that I have. Um, so I think that it differs for each person in accordance with a number of other factors at that point. But the underlying theme is um, being exhausted by the demonization either of Islam as a religion or the Muslim community as a community that emanates uh, from all sides. Well, I, I think we should just pause for a moment and recognize that what you're saying is that the everyday life of a Muslim American or an American Muslim, we'll get to that in a moment, uh, is uh, is one of constant anxiety, of looking over one's shoulder, of being careful, of having to monitor your surroundings. Is that fair? I think I think that that's um, that's that's fair. You know, and and I, I think and and far more for other people in terms of the fear, in particular, in the public space, those that are visibly Muslim and particularly Muslim women, that's definitely the case. Okay. So let's be uh, even more specific about how in uh, the, the past two decades, this has intensified. Obviously mm -hmm. after 9-11, there was an enormous uh, outrage in America about uh, the terrorist attacks that were um, brought about by a certain faction of, of uh, jihadist Muslims uh, that uh, you and other people in the Muslim community roundly condemned as well. But nonetheless, we, we had a reaction in the entirety of our country, not only against a, a specific group of people who acted in violent, murderous ways, but against an entire religion. And there have been uh, a series of, uh, of events and attacks and consequences of that that continue to um, be a, a part of our country's life in the two decades since that time, uh, which also includes even in the last couple of years, Dallas being the place where more uh, mosques have been protested by armed American citizens than any other city in America. Did I say that correctly? Dallas definitely leads the way. So Dallas is, in that sense, the capital of Islamophobia in America. I, I think people who live in the Dallas area would be stunned by learning that that is the case, because I think we have this sort of idealized version of ourselves as being uh, a generally kind and generous and religiously uh, oriented community that uh, finds a way to live together in harmony and all of that. But again, uh, when, when you can't even go to your place of worship without uh, fear of passing uh, armed uh, protesters who, are, uh, who, who have Nazi uh, insignias and who are, are threatening the lives of the people who go, this is an extraordinary thing that I think we just need to raise up because it's not something that the media is covering regularly, right? No, it's not. And it's one of those things where it, it, it became just a normal part of our lives. Um, and I'll say this, that the people that uh, you saw, you know, protesting on Capitol Hill or they weren't protesters, right? But 
Right. Uh, those images are images that we are very familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they, of course, in Dallas, uh, were holding Ted Cruz signs before Donald Trump uh, wow. alongside their guns in front of our mosques. And this is all captured by video and by images. Um, mm-hmm. And so those long rifles and those, uh, th- those chants and those threats uh, in front of our mosques um, have been a regular have been a regular occurrence. And I'll also say this because I think it's important. And I hope you don't mind me um, uh, introducing this element to it. But I think that the problem is it's not just the bigots in the street. It's the fact that Islamophobia uh, is deeply intertwined at the state and policy level in a way that validates the actions of those in the streets and those that are, 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 you know, showing up with their long rifles in front of our mosques. And so when you talk about, you know, uh, the, the relationship between the United States of America as a, as a government, the American government and the Muslim world, um, it's not a good relationship, right? There are, uh, we, we, we have to account for the way that Islamophobia um, has, led to state violence in the sense of our foreign policy, our militarism, our foreign policy, specifically targeting the Muslim world has been unprincipled, brutal, um, has, has, has destabilized multiple nations and has, uh, has, has uh, led to um, all sorts of adverse reactions and, and problems that are not taken into account by the American public usually because people stay, you know, they're not in proximity with that stuff, right? I only know what I'm seeing on the news, what I'm seeing on the media. At the mm-hmm. domestic level, the Irving mayor who's now in Congress and was endorsed right. by the Dallas Morning News. Beth Van Dyne. Let's yeah, Beth Van Dyne, who was the mayor of Irving at the time. Um you know, who, who was, and I know that many people at the Dallas Morning News um, did, did not endorse her, but at least the paper endorsed her for Congress. And she now sits as a representative of this area. It was her stoking the flames initially and saying that, uh, you know, that there is a, a, a Sharia court that's operating in Irving, Texas, and that Muslims are plotting a takeover of government here in Irving, Texas, where we suddenly need to pass an anti-Sharia bill in Irving, Texas. And so that's what led to um, these flames being stoked and we're still dealing with the fallout of that. And so clock boy and all of those other ugly incidents, that was not just people in the street. That was people right. in government too. And so Islamophobia is uh, interlaced in our foreign policy and our domestic policy. And of course, lastly, with that surveillance, mass surveillance, um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the countering violent extremism, the CVE programs uh, that uh, have have led to entrapment and, and deep violations of the civil liberties of American Muslims are molded in COINTELPRO, have been used against uh, the black community uh, for, for generations now. And that, you know, you look at the formation of the Department of Homeland Security, out of which ICE was formed, right? right. right? ICE came out of a counterterrorism reality. And look at what we're dealing with in terms of mass surveillance and just the deep violations of our civil liberties. That's also Islamophobic. Right? And, and, and all, all this in, at a time when Christopher Wray, the um, director of the FBI, has said specifically that the single greatest domestic terrorist uh, threat in America 
is white supremacy, white nationalists. Uh, so, you know, we don't see that same level of surveillance, uh, that same level of anxiety taking place uh, with, with folks like that. Um, it, let me go back to uh, now constructively some of the ways that we, we want to talk about where we move forward. So I think we've outlined some of the policy issues and some of the lived experience on the ground of what it's like to be uh, Muslim in America. Uh, but uh, I, I think what we want to do on this program, at least, is to give some guidance and to say, uh, if we're to be part of the solution and not the problem, there's a certain understanding that has to come first of all, which we're, we're working to do here. But what are some con concrete steps that we could take? What are some ways that we could more um, participate as laypersons, clergy, as, as people in the political sphere, uh, to uh, pave the way for uh, a greater sense of full enfranchisement in the, the democratic life of Muslims in America? I think uh, that's a great question. I appreciate it. Uh, it takes a lot of introspection. It takes a lot of, um, a lot of open and honest conversation. I think that uh, first and foremost, it's important to take the time to actually listen to American Muslims talk about their lived experiences. Um, you know, I, I would say under normal circumstances, visit your local mosque, uh, get to know your your local Muslim community. Um, listen to your Muslim coworkers uh, talk about how they're feeling and um, the different ways in which they feel disenfranchised. Because sometimes, uh, again, that can be uh, there are different ways of disenfranchising someone. So it's it's not always just holding an AR in front of your face. It's uh, it, it's it's sometimes more than that. So the different ways in which people feel disenfranchised. And I think um, it's important for um, especially those that uh, would deem themselves as allies of the Muslim community um, to, uh, to, to, to understand us beyond merely another, you know, checkbox or, you know, or, or another marginalized group that you're just going to check the box and say, all right, well, let's make sure we throw Muslims in there with all the other groups that have been marginalized in America. We're a faith community. We're a community that, um, you know, that, that, that feels often unwelcomed in both right and left spaces, uh, mm -hmm. that, that feels demonized in different ways. Uh, and so, you know, not to fall to Orientalist tropes and not to fall into uh, this idea of the Muslim community needs to save uh, or needs to be saved from Islam uh, in order to, to fit in, right? So, uh, what does it mean to embrace? And, and I've heard you say this multiple times that Muslims are the test of pluralism in America, mm -hmm. um, are, are truly a test for pluralism in America. And I appreciate that sentiment because uh, American Muslims um, don't want someone else to speak for them. They want to be able to speak for themselves. And that means uh, paving the way for that and making sure that you take the time to really understand uh, how American Muslims are feeling about things. And I would say that when it comes to challenging for the layperson, challenging, um, you know, uh, Islamophobia beyond merely rejecting the angry white supremacy supremacists in the street, I, I think that that means uh, challenging uh, Islamophobia at the policy level, at the state level, okay. in a very serious way. And I find multiple times that 
when it comes to our foreign policy, this suddenly becomes a very uncomfortable conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When it comes to um, surveillance and when it comes to critiquing uh, many of the practices which have emanated out of the Democratic Party as well, right? Mass mm -hmm. surveillance existed under the Bush administration and the Obama administration. It's, it's similar to immigration where you'll hear immigration activists say, hey, look, you know, Deportation did not slow down under Barack Obama, under a Democratic administration. We, we're not, uh, you know, that th this 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 type of policy uh, occurs in in multiple uh, facets and under uh, under under both Republican and Democratic administrations. Well, and, and let's let's pursue that even even further. I mean, Barack Obama received a Nobel Peace Prize, and yet uh, was was one of the most um, egregious um, presidents in the use of drones right. to uh, conduct foreign policy by the assassination and killing of uh, uh, of Muslims around the world. Uh, you know, whatever you want to say about the nature of technology and military technology and its potential uh, benefits, the consequences of the use of drones is that there is always collateral damage that happens, uh, that there is a sense of victimization that happens then in uh, Muslim communities around the world that intensifies the anti-Americanism because of the, uh, the, the, the use of, of, of technology that um, uh, that makes vulnerable and disrespects communities uh, and, and a religion around the world. And, and this, this took place during the Obama administration, not during the Bush administration, not during the Trump administration alone. Right. Not, not alone. So that, that's the key word, right? It, ha it certainly, yeah. you know, Bush, uh, you know, under, Bush launched all out wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and completely destroyed right. nations. And, and obviously, you know, <laughs> The casualty counts are high, and, and Trump uh, certainly maintained the dronings of, of multiple people around the world, innocent people, but he hid the disclosures, uh, which made it even uglier because it took an already unaccountable use of force and made it even more unaccountable. Um, but it was, uh, it, it certainly was um, um, escalated under the Obama administration and not in any way diminished. And what that means is that a drone falls on a wedding somewhere in, in right. Yemen or Somalia, and there's absolutely no visibility of those victims whatsoever. Now, why is that important um, for us to discuss here? And I think this is also part of the, uh, the point that, you know, we started off this program by saying that, you know, we're talking about American Muslims, Islam as, as an American religion, Muslims as an American people, you know, that's what we mentioned, right? So. I think it's important to recognize that the same dehumanization that underlies our foreign policy also underlies our domestic policy. What does that mean? If you look at the way that inner city communities are governed in the United States, there is, you know, a, a, an often unspoken but um, effective tactic which is to say that these communities are too brutal, but to be governed by, by they can only be governed by violence. They can right, only right, be governed right. by brutality. And so that justifies excessive use of force because you've associated a criminal identity 
a terrorist identity, a thug identity that allows you then to justify your excess of force and power in the eyes of the, the, the part of the public that's not familiar with the dynamics of those communities that lead to, you know, uh, the, the uh, lead to the out, the, the, the output that we see, um, which are just horrific images and th things of that sort. And so it can't be that these people deserve justice so that we can live in peace. Uh, because if we don't give them justice, if we don't stop doing this to them, then we're not going to be okay because then you're, you're also not treating them as equal human beings. Uh, so what does right. that mean, by the way? What that means is that uh, sometimes, and, and you didn't just do this, by the way, so I want to be very clear, but sometimes I remember Marco Rubio was, was you know, and, in, in, the, in, the, in the 2016 uh, race when he was, uh, you know, speaking about then candidate Trump and his uh, saying, I think Islam hates us, he immediately went to what he immediately pivoted to well, when you say that, you make it harder for Americans that live in the Muslim world and harder for our American foreign policy because they're hearing the president say, I think Islam hates us. The fact that you pivot there is actually a problem because you have to start from, is this just towards you know, 2 billion people in the world? Right, right. <laughs> Almost 2 billion people in the world, right? Is, mm -hmm. Because when you talk about equal human beings, then, uh, then you have to start from that point of it's unjust. And that's where, you know, it's very hard for us to do so, particularly with communities that we're disconnected from at a very human level. And I always mention this about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that one of the things that, um, you know, that, that, that uh, MLK scholars will point to is the evolution of Dr. King's thinking when he spoke about the Vietnam War, to where at the end of Dr. King speaking about Vietnam, he started speaking about it from the perspective of the Vietnamese child not from the perspective of this is bad for America because it puts our soldiers in harm's way. No, mm -hmm. start from like the, the Vietnamese child who is, uh, you know, having bombs drop on them and has absolutely no idea why uh, they're being reduced by these high power weapons to, to, to dust and ashes with absolutely no consequences in the world. So that underlies foreign and domestic, and it's the same thing. It's the same thing that, that, that causes police brutality, the excessive use of force, state violence domestically, that causes uh, the excessive use of force, um, you know, in, in the militarism, in, in the military sense uh, abroad. And that is the dehumanization of people that is born out of white supremacy and erases, um, erases all sorts of people. And uh, Muslims have, have been greatly diminished and erased in that sense uh, by that machine. So it, I, I think we've discussed this, you and I, from time to time. And, and that is that in, in the particulars of our religious traditions, we are different. And we won't erase those or should erase those in order to affirm full participation in American society. Uh, but there are common elements in all of our religious traditions that go to the point you were just making that could create the conditions for uh, greater peace and, and, and greater participation uh, in, in, in our country for everyone. And the, the Christian uh, golden rule is one of those things, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
when you begin to look at the Vietnam War from the point of view of the Vietnamese child, not from your own point of view. Now you're putting yourself in the position of the other person and asking, what would I want someone, how, how would I want someone to treat me? Let me treat that person in that way. If we were to do that in American religion, if the dominant Christian um, person in America, uh, who, what I mean to say is that the, the, the Christian experience is dominant in the culture, right? And so if Christians were to look at Muslims in America, look at Jews, look at, at Sikhs, look at other religious traditions and say, if I were in their position, how would I want to be treated? Things would be different, huh? Yeah, and I think it's not just, it certainly starts from that point, because as you mentioned, uh, particularly when you're speaking the capacity of religion, it's not just that, it's, um, you know what happens when you when you develop an understanding and you you move beyond um, basic, human, basic humanization of that person is that you're actually able to appreciate uh, that person's perspective. I don't know many um, Christian clergy uh, Christian leaders that um, that I've been able to develop a relationship with, and and obviously you know that's the, the level of that relationship has differed, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. look, people want to show up for the dialogue. Sometimes it's it's the debate. Sometimes it's uh it's the press conference, and then sometimes it's deep relationship, um, which which I've been blessed to uh, to have with with you, um, and that. Uh, I can't think of a single time where those relationships have been built where a deeply devout Christian did not walk away from our relationship with a greater appreciation of Islam mm -hmm. and of the Muslim community. Like, wait a minute, like, okay, these, these people, you know, uh, are, are really not, <laughs> they're not who I thought they were. Uh, and their religion is not what I thought it was. Right. And, and so, um, you know, I, I, and I give the example of, of, you know, with, with Muslim Christian dialogue, I think that that, that is the position of Jesus, peace be upon him, mm -hmm. because Jesus means a whole lot to me as a Muslim, a whole lot to me as a Muslim with, uh, with, with Muslim Jewish dialogue. I think the similarities and how, uh, law is approached and, and, you know, there's right. so much to be, to Sharia be yeah, when, when you start to look in, into the history that, and, the, and the deep relationship, you know, of, uh, under uh, Andalus and the way that Muslims and Jews have coexisted in, in the past and, mm -hmm. and have coexisted in beautiful ways. So the rich um, intertwining, if you will, the rich understanding and, and, and camaraderie and there's a deep appreciation there once you're, you're able to actually get to there where you feel safe enough to, to talk about that stuff and then to, to say, wait a minute, like, OK, this is. This is really, really uh, different. This is not what I thought it was. So you move beyond humanization to an appreciation of that diversity and to, uh, to, to not just finding it as something, a bitter pill to swallow, but as actually enriching uh, yes. to the American social fabric. So I think that when it comes to the religious groups of people, um, you know, within our religious groups of people, starting from the perspective of dominant Christian, dominant white Christian narrative, right, and and um, broadening that perspective of religion, I think that there's a way there, uh, a way forward there, which is that you know there has to be an understanding 
uh, coming to a place of understanding that white supremacy is as secularizing as anything on the left. Yes. Once you bring white supremacy into your dogma, into your creed, and you turn Jesus, peace be upon him, into a symbol of white supremacy, whether you verbalize that or not, but you use Jesus effectively as a tool of white supremacy, that is as secularizing as anything that's on the left. Well, and let's look at what happened to the uh, insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol uh, just this week. This program is going to be uh, several weeks from uh, from now uh, aired, but uh, but on January 6th, uh, the day of the certification of the election of Joe Biden as president, there was this uh, march on the Capitol and an invasion of the Capitol. And there were Jesus save signs all over the place. Uh, there were people wearing crosses and people who were uh, claiming that they were motivated by uh, their Christian faith in doing this. This is an affront to me as a Christian. Let's be very clear. Uh, and this is a, a you know a, a, a deeply offensive way of being Christian in America, and I reject it and, uh, and, and want people to be held accountable for that. Um, but now can moving- I, Can I tell you something yes. just on a note? As I, I, because of my relationship with you and with, with so many Christians who I have built such a deep relationship with, some in my own family, I know that that's surprising. There are a lot of Palestinian Christians on my mom's side. I've, I've got Christian relatives. The bumper sticker that went viral in Texas was kill a Muslim for Jesus. Uh, there was a proper, so, so that was on people's cars, kill a Muslim for Jesus. And I saw that and I thought to myself, if I was George or Michael or Andy or Rachel and I was driving and I saw that, I'd probably be super offended too. Like yeah. stop using right. this for something so abhorrent and so ridiculously ugly and just flashing that on your car Imagine, and you know, obviously the hypocrisy, the consistency, and I would be really upset, but if like there was a bumper sticker in Texas that said, kill a, kill a Christian for Muhammad, peace right. be upon I'd be pretty upset about that, right? Like that right. is so outrageous, but mm -hmm. only one of those is accepted and has a policy implication and is fine right. in, in so many different ways here in the United States. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I thought about you when I saw that bumper sticker. Yeah, well, well I mean, look, here's, what we're trying to do as we wrap up here is, is uh, thank you for this conversation, by the way, but uh, you know, I, I think, again, we're trying to look at what are the ways that we can, in an everyday experience of life together in our communities, begin to tie the frayed ends of uh, the tapestry that is America. Uh, and uh, and begin to um, mend our, our our souls and and move toward uh, the goal of, of a really beautiful um, pluralist religious uh, environment. And one of the ways that we can do that, I think, is you've mentioned a lot of policy things, okay. um, but it, it's also in not allowing things like that to stand. Not, not just shaking your head when you're a Christian and you see a bumper sticker like that. Uh, not just letting it go when Jesus saves at, a, at a, a political insurrection takes place. We have to speak about it. We have, we have to denounce it. 
And, and then we also have to make positive uh, steps, and that is to reach out to people who are part of offended communities by these sorts of things that, that are vulnerable. So, for example, I think uh, just to list a few things, if we could, to end, uh, what are some what are some concrete things that we could do? For example, if you are a a, a non-Muslim American, and it's uh, the season of Ramadan, for instance, uh, it's uh, uh, you know. Eid al-Fitr or uh, Eid al-Adhar, right? What should we say? What should we do uh, when you are celebrating? What should we say and do when you are hurting? What are some of the ways that we can begin to repair and promote good relationships? Thank you. Yeah, and, and I know that we just scratched the surface with the surface with policy, and I don't, <laughs> and yeah. I apologize for taking it down that that route for a little too long, and and we certainly did not get to everything. That's all right. That's all right. Um, are we talking about COVID or non-COVID era, uh, George? Like, oh, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, since I don't think we're going to be in COVID forever, I hope uh, let's let's think about it in non-COVID terms. I, I think visiting a mosque is is really <clears throat> eye-opening. Um, for people to actually get to know their local Muslim community and to get to know their local Muslim leaders. Um, you know, that, that doesn't mean that you might walk, you, you might walk into, um, you know, a mosque and um, you, you come away uh, feeling unwelcomed, uh, but that certainly would be in the, in the, in the one or 2% of the hundred percent. I think that most people that have actually gone to a mosque and it wouldn't be because of Islam or because of the Muslim community be for, for, some personal reason, probably, but I think most people that have gone to a mosque have have really enjoyed their experience and have gotten to know their local Muslim community and uh, came away feeling enriched. Most people that have taken their families to mosques and got to know their local Muslim community came away feeling deeply enriched. I think in your co-working environment at your workplace, uh, it's very hard, you know, especially when you're thinking about larger you know, companies and things of that sort to not know that there are Muslims that are there getting to know them. Uh, I, I speak at multiple, um, you know, uh, diversity and inclusion events and, um, you know, the, the employee resource groups that allow for presentations of Islam in the Muslim community are often not very highly attended, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. a small group of people that will take away from their lunch hour to go and attend, but those that do attend come away and like, I've been working with this person for four years, but I never really understood your religion and never really understood who you were as a Muslim and what your concerns about, you know, uh, right and left politics, media, social, the social fabric of America and where you feel welcomed and unwelcomed. I never really got it until now. Uh, so provoking those conversations, don't force people to have to bring those things up. Ask, you know, uh, ask people questions. Muslims love to be asked questions uh, okay. without, without a tone of suspicion. So ask right. questions, honest questions, open, questions. honest questions, open questions, uh, right. without, without the tone of suspicion. And then lastly, George, I'm going to say this. We are at the best version of ourselves when we're serving together. Uh, -huh. uh this is my hurricane Katrina experience, which we're not going to talk about right now because we're at the end of the program. But what I witnessed in Hurricane Katrina of our faith communities coming together to rebuild New Orleans together mm -hmm. was the most beautiful expression of human potential. 
Good. and the most beautiful output of faith communities and the most genuine of relationship building that I've ever seen in my life. It was truly beauty after tragedy that, um, that, that just forever imprinted in me this idea that we are best as faith communities when we come together to serve our broader society. What we learn about ourselves in the process and learn about each other in the process is, is profoundly uh, enriching to us as individuals and as societies. Well, Imam Dr. Omar Solomon, you are a gift to us all here in Dallas and as an American. Uh, and we are grateful for your leadership, for your spiritual leadership, uh, for your friendship, and for making us better. Uh, thank you uh, for joining us again uh, on Good God. And uh, because this is... Word, I just want to make it clear that you two are a gift. Thank you for being a gift uh, to all of us as well. Really appreciate you. Uh, you're you're your so view. very welcome. We, we count on one another, don't we? Absolutely. Well, as this is Friday, uh, the proper uh, way of uh, greeting a, a Muslim on a Friday might be uh, Jumma Mubarak, right? <laughs> That's you, you, you've definitely uh, got all the lingo down, man. That's great. <laughs> Where did I learn it? Where did you learn it? I, I hope it would be that you learned everything about Islam through me, but, but, I, but I know that's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not, but, but the point is relationships, Absolutely. right? Uh, wanting to learn and wanting to, um, uh, to, to, to treat one another with um, dignity and respect and to be partners in this uh, great American project that is uh, filled with spiritual hope and potential too. So uh, thank you so much, Omar, and God bless you. Take care. Thank you, George. I appreciate it. All right. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God. Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.